It's Friday, June 3rd, and time for episode three of It's a Packed Life podcast. I'm your host, Celeste, and today I am going to be welcoming my friend, Heather Gibson. Welcome to the show. You're my first interview. (laughs) I'm good to practice on. I've got my Yeti microphone. I've been looking at getting a Yeti. Do you like it? I do. I really do. I've played around with all the settings to find the one that I think I like best. You know. Well, look at you. You're like yards ahead of me. I just bought this book, Podcast Launch. You feel like it's good? Um, I'm just getting into it, but it does have some video tutorials. And I feel like there's been several parts of it that have been helpful. I'm working on it. I I have several things already recorded and I have not launched any of it yet. <laughs> it's a little scary. There's a little bit of a process and there's already people in my space. And so I'm trying to launch it so that it helps climb the charts a little faster, I guess, so that it gets noticed. And I guess there's several things you do. For example, you have kind of a launch group and they're in a Facebook group and they get incentivized to go in and like like and comment and do certain things that helps your algorithm when you're launching. So I just have not even had the bandwidth, the mind strength to wrap around that yet. So that's why I have recordings with nothing happening yet. My my process is just do it. Just get it going. Because if I wait until I feel like I am an expert to be able to put it out this stuff, it's not going to happen because I tend to research everything to death. You too. What? Mm. <laughs> it's almost like I have this need to have some kind of control, which does not exist. We all keep holding on to it though and hoping that one day we'll find it. Actually, I am hoping that I can let the idea of the need for control go. Just let it go. That would be good. I wish I was there. I'll have to work on that. <laughs> well, I didn't say I was there yet. I said that that's my goal. Well, it's a good goal. We'll have to keep each other accountable. Before we get going on this, is there anything that you want to make sure we hit on? No, not really. Okay. Because I just kind of want to like free flow it and see what happens. I feel like I've explained it to death, but I'm fine tuning as I'm getting closer to my launching. I've been fine tuning like what is this podcast about? Mm -hmm. It's really about authentic living and how that looks different for every person. And um, I was talking to one of my friends the other day who was like, because I, I feel like she's one of the most authentic people I know. And she was like, I just, I just don't think I live as authentically as you think I do. And I was like, I think you're thinking of authenticity in this like perfection space. And that is not <laughs> yeah. what I'm looking for either, because for me to have authenticity, we have to be intentional. And that's what mm-hmm. I, I'm talking. It's intentionalism and authenticity and community and connection. Those are kind of my four points that like, yeah, your four pillars. That's awesome. Yeah. I just want to make sure before we go into this, that when I'm saying like, what are your intentional practices that give you that authentic life? Or, you know, hopefully I'll word it better than that. I don't know. We'll see what comes out of my mouth, but um, I'm not looking for a perfect answer. I'm looking for like, truly, what are the things that you 
what are you, like your goals with that? What are the things you're trying to do? What are things that it doesn't mean that we're perfect in this every day. You know, right. but I think that's part of authenticity too, is, is being honest about the fact that when you live an intentional life, it doesn't mean that everything you do, you do with a hundred percent of an intention in that moment. <laughs> That'd be exhausting. Yeah. Oh, That'd be so, so exhausting. It's 11, 11. I think that's a perfect time for me to go ahead and do the intro and then we'll move into this. Are you ready? Yep. Sounds good. All right. Welcome to our episode today of It's a Pat to Life podcast. And today I have Heather Gibson as my guest. And Heather, we have known each other since junior high. Yeah, ninth grade. It was ninth grade. I'm trying to think what year that would have been, like 1992, 90. I don't remember. Let's see. If I graduated in 95, which now I'm dating myself. Right. Well, you know, I'm da- I'm right there with you. Let's see. That would have been 91. Yeah, I think so. It was at the end of the year, not the end of the school year. So okay. it would have been 91. Yeah. So yeah. 1991. I know. So many decades of friendship here. Yes. And you were my first friend at Valley Junior High. I know we were Valley girls. La la la. <laughs> In West Valley, Utah. (laughs) Yes. Let's talk a little bit about our friendship because one of the things that I think is super important is connection. And one of the reasons I want to do this podcast is all about how, how we build those connections. We went to that junior high together and that is all, it wasn't even a whole year. And then we went to different high schools that were across the city from the Valley. They weren't even in the same city. Right. But they were across the Valley from each other. Mm-hmm. We, we have never lived by each other. No, now I have lived with your family. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes when I didn't live there, I don't think I ever lived there when you lived there. <laughs> I mean, I spent the night a lot. Um, and the beginning of our friendship maintaining it was really right around the birth of the internet. Yeah, it's true. Did we email each other? Not until college. Well, I'm thinking about college. Oh, yeah. Once or twice, I think we emailed. I mean, I didn't have a cell phone for a long time after that. I didn't have a cell phone until my second child was born. So we just lived in a different era for sure than we do I know, right? Trying to explain that to my child. Like, we wrote letters. (laughs) We sent each other mail. (laughs) Yep. But all through high school, I actually spent more time in high school hanging out with you and Andrea. We were kind of spazzed together. Um, she, so let's talk about that for a minute because you accomplished the unicorn of friendship by having a best friend and a best friend meet. And it never was weird. It's true. I think we were a unique group though. I mean, we were very low key. We we weren't clicky. We were just not what you would think of a normal high school s- student. What made it different? None None of us in that group, in our group of friends, at least the ones that I was close to, there wasn't a competition. There was never like, well, who do you like better? I really feel like the reason that worked with you and me and Andrea so well is that all three of us were at a time when we wanted to be seen and validated and cared for. And I think we were open to anyone who would provide that for us. I want to say in a healthy way. Oh yeah. I think we got lucky that it was each other because I don't know that it necessarily, you know, it could have gone unhealthy. It's true. 
It's true. There's a lot of people that kind of get caught up in that time frame, end up with unhealthy friendships. But I, I don't know, for me personally, part of it has to do with the fact that my parents lived out of the country for three years. And when I came back, I had nobody, you know, like all my childhood friends had kind of moved on. They were kind of living that more normal teenage life. And I didn't understand any of the boy bands. I didn't understand any of the clothes. And so I came back in and honestly, I just wanted anybody that would be kind and support, you know, me and what I was doing. I was really open to anyone that was willing to do that and to offer that back to anybody. I remember when I first got back, my whole goal was to find the person that was the loneliest in the room and be friends with them because I knew that they would be good friends back because we needed each other, you know? That's so that- special. <laughs> no, I think that's beautiful though, because you, yeah. you were looking for that connection and using your experience and your um, empathy and those things to facilitate that kind of a connection. Well, no wonder we're so great of friends. <laughs> I, I think going through what I did created a ton of empathy and love and kindness for people that were struggling, just being really open to doing anything I could to help meet that need, just like I had people meeting the need for me. So, yeah. So I had moved there. This, this was my third junior high. I had gone to one for seventh grade, one for eighth grade, the very beginning of ninth. And then this was my third junior high where we lived. The junior high school was seventh through ninth grade. I have to say that because I know out here where we are now in North Carolina, there is no junior high. They have elementary, they have middle school, which is like sixth, seventh, eighth. And then the high school is ninth through 12th. We've been friends since 1991. Do we want to keep saying that? Maybe we shouldn't keep saying that. We've been friends for a while. (laughs) Yes, we have been. We've not lived in the same state for the majority of that friendship. It's true. Because you moved out to California. You got married. My husband was at graduate school in California for several years. And then we moved back about the same same time that you moved out of Utah. So. We overlapped for a little bit there because we were getting together for lunches and stuff when we were all back in the state. It was maybe a two year? years. Two years? Yeah, something like that. year and a half, two, two years. I have no idea. Because we, we left Utah in 2014. Mm. Yeah, I'd have to really think about that no. to know. I don't know. Anyway. It's been important to me to maintain the friendship and we're busy. We're you've got tell tell everyone how many children you have. Yeah, so I have 7 children, 4 adopted from foster care and 3 biological. And they're all um, adorable most days. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have one and mine's adorable most days too. Yeah, yeah, so they keep me busy. They're older now. Um yeah. I, I have four at home currently. So my youngest is now 14. It's a different life than I had before, but it's a different kind of busy. And then you probably heard my dogs in the background. I breed emotional support dogs and cats, and I'm moving into the therapy service training realm. It's a busy life, but it's good. It's a busy life. It's yeah. a packed life, Heather. Yes, it is a packed <laughs> life. I was sure. going to get that in there somewhere. <laughs> Yes, we are definitely a pack in so many ways. And you've done, do you still have cats? Because you've done cats as well. I breed Tonkinese and Balinese cats. So I've got a few of each and I've started utilizing guardian homes. So my cats will go to homes who want to raise the kittens 
So the, the cats will have four litters and then they become officially right. the family they're with. But I get them the last four weeks to train them before they go to their new home. So we do lots of sound and desensitization for the cats. And then the puppies, I always have at least a litter here. And then I do, if I have more than one litter, I'll have someone else help me so that I'm not overwhelmed. And I've got a few people that are really well trained in it. So it ends up helping out. Smart. So how Heather, did you get into the emotional support animal? I don't want to say market. That's not the word I'm looking for because world life pack. Niche. Niche. Yeah. Niche. Yeah. I know. Anytime you get on a recording, it's always harder. So it started with my kids. It was probably about 10 or 11 years ago. I had foster children. Um, They weren't adopted yet. And we just had a large pack of kids. They were always fighting for attention. And I thought, I've got to find a different way to meet that touch need more often. And so that's when I started looking into animals. And I started with cats first because too many dogs felt like it would completely overwhelm me. And now I'm like crazy. (laughs) We've got four and I feel like that's nuts. Yeah. It's a handful for sure. You know, just in that desire to help meet my kids' needs, I started researching cat breeds that make good emotional support animals. And it was so hard to find what I was looking for when the breeder mentioned, Hey, we need more breeders. Would you consider, you know, doing a litter and seeing what you think? And we just kind of got involved in that and loved it. My kids loved having kittens around and raising them. And then it's been about five years ago. Now my daughter, Madison, who's my biological daughter, she was really struggling in college. And I had just placed a cat with a young woman, very similar to her. And I said, Maddie, why haven't we placed a cat with you? I think that might really help you at college. And she looked at me in her little attitude way and said, mom, I'm not a cat person. I'm a dog person. And I was like, oh crap. And that's how we started into dogs. Dogs. Oh, the things we do for our kids. I know. I know. And so, yeah, it's just been a journey. It's really all been about my kids and figuring out their needs and then wanting to share what was working for us with other families. So I think it's really important that we talk right now about, because I know that there are going to be people that are like, oh, backyard breeder, blah, blah, blah. That is not what this is. And I want to emphasize that you cannot just go to a pound or even to a breeder and guarantee that you are going to have an animal that has the right temperament that has, cause you can't take an animal that has a traumatic background and guarantee that they're going to be okay. You can take an animal from a perfectly great background and there's still no guarantee. This is important to me because as you know, I had a panic disorder for 12 years. And for two of those years, I didn't leave my house until I was finally told uh, by a caring therapist, <laughs> I think you need a service dog. And now what you're doing is not a service animal. It's an emotional support animal. So let's talk about the difference between the two. Yes. So I'm moving into the service realm now, like I've gotten more training and I'm moving that way, but you're absolutely right. So emotional support animals are animals that are there to help comfort you. So for that, we're looking for very outgoing animals, ones that seek you out and want to sit with you and be with you. But they don't necessarily have to be trained in tasks. Correct. And that's, it's, that's when we move into the service dog area. 
Yeah. So it's really about personality. You know, you want the outgoing personality. Now there are not many guarantees from the government under the American Disability Act for emotional support animals. You cannot take them every place you want to. Yeah. They are not allowed in grocery stores. Restaurants um, or right. Anything with food, they're out. Um, The one provision they do still have is that if you are renting in most cases, you are allowed to bring in an emotional support animal, even if there's a no pet rule, as well as get the pet fee waived. And I did start a Facebook group for this that kind of provides, it's actually just a page that helps provide advice for people that are struggling. And it's the Emotional Support Animal Resource Center. So if anybody wants to look that up. I will post a link to that in the show notes when we do this. I'll make sure that I get that from you so that we have that posted because I think that that is phenomenal information. So that's kind of, it used to be you could fly with your pet for free. They took that away um, in 2020. So that's no longer the case. There are kind of three other levels of dogs that I look at. And now I'm personality testing my, my puppies that come through. Um, there's therapy dogs. So a lot of times that's just a therapist taking their personal dog that's been trained to work. There's a lot of people that are out getting trained and um, visiting registered. Hospitals. Yeah. yeah. Hospitals, library readings, yeah. um, long-term care centers. So they'll yeah. go out for a few hours and do that kind of a thing. They have a new one that they call facility dogs. So that is kind of more like the therapist taking their dog to work where the dog kind of just belongs to the facility and right. comes in for a lot of the day. Right. And then service animals, which is what you were talking about, where they perform a very specific task. Yeah. Um, I'm going to talk about that a little, if that's okay. Yeah, go I ahead. I have personal experience around this. There is a lot of misinformation out there around service dogs. And one of the hardest things for me to bite my tongue around, well, and I don't bite my tongue, let's be honest. When I hear people talking and saying, oh, just tell, tell people it's a service dog and take your pet. Like, it's not that big of a deal. You can take them into this store. You can do this. Or the reason that that is so damaging is because if they are not truly service dogs, you are creating now a need for more legislation and more issues and more hurdles for people who truly need these animals to live their lives, to survive this animal. It, when it is a service animal, it is a medical device. And that is something that people, I, I, don't know how many times it will take for them to hear. It is not just a pet because they live with people all the time. And people say, oh, well, my dog helps me feel better too. We, we hear these conversations and I'm sure you hear these conversations a lot. And because there is there, there's actually, and people don't know this, there's actually no specific training required. Like there's no, like you have to pass this program in order to be a service dog. There are lots of programs out there and you have to do your research because some of them are good. And some of them are just out there trying to get money off of people who are desperate for help. There's not a certificate. There's not if if and this is the fastest way to know somebody doesn't know what the hell they're talking about and that they're trying to pass a pet off as a service animal is if they tell you that they have a, their certification mm. because there is yes. no required certification. There is no like 
badge or paperwork or something that proves that this is a legitimate service animal. And part of the reason behind that is because someone who needs that animal should not have to be explaining that over and over and over again. One of the hardest things for me with a service dog that is there to help make sure that I'm not moving into a space of panic so that I can function in the regular world was having someone come up to me and tell me I couldn't be in that space and having to try to educate someone while I'm dealing with a debilitating disease. And so I just, I wish there was better education out there around it. There's a lot of misinformation. You're absolutely right. And on my um, Facebook page, a lot of times I'll see arguments back and forth about what it is and what it isn't. And we have to remember that even with the emotional support animals, they lost the right to fly on planes because people were misusing it. Yes. Um, People were bringing peacocks and chipmunks and because of all the problems it caused, it ruined it for the people that really needed it. it. Yeah, exactly. Well, because as the emotional support animal is there, like people say, well, yours was an emotional support animal. And I'm going to explain why, even though it was a mental health thing, mine was not an emotional support animal. I would pass out from my blood pressure would drop at the beginning of a panic Um, some of the panic attacks, my blood pressure would drop really low right before it's part of the adrenaline, the way your body's responding. It's trying to move into fight or flight. I already have a very naturally low blood pressure. And so it would drop and I would just pass out. And so in the beginning, before I got around to where I was finally diagnosed several years later, I just knew that I was passing out. And so that of course, exacerbated the anxiety around it and the panic, and it made things worse. And that's where I became very reclusive for several years until I got to the point where the therapist had said, I think that you need a service dog to help recognize when a panic attack is coming, that can help you be ground, do some grounding that can help create space for you because I had developed agoraphobia and I had developed, which is a fear of people. Right. And I'm an extrovert. (laughs) You are. (laughs) If anyone had ever told you, Heather, Celeste is going to be afraid of being around people. <laughs> it's like the first I would have said you're crazy. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. It was really hard for me to adapt to having this disease. I don't, it's really, you know, and this, this illness that created a whole different world for me. But when the therapist started laying out, these are the things that your service dog would do. We had a dog in our home that was doing most of those things while we were at home. I had never even thought about a service animal. I thought my limited information was a service dog is like a seeing eye dog or a hearing ear dog. You know, like I was not thinking about people who maybe have epilepsy and the dogs can sense when an episode's coming on. I wasn't thinking about the dogs that are trained for diabetes or for a highly autistic child who struggles to function and the dog creating a way for them to be able to be in normal life situations. I definitely had never thought about panic disorders or what that would look like or be like. I fortunately had a friend who had worked with service animals and training them through a 4-H program where they had helped to do the, I just blanked on what it's called, the, um, the out and about training out in public. Okay. Yeah. The good, good citizen. Yeah. But making sure that like the animals don't react to people in public, that they are fine getting on an elevator, going on an escalator, you know, like all these different things that you might come across in day-to-day living that we don't even think about like the automatic doors opening. 
a lot of animals freak the flip out <laughs> with that. Yes, you know? they do. It and takes training. It takes mm-hmm. training and it takes a lot of hours and a lot of time. But this friend stepped in and said, wait, if your dog is already doing all of that, let me see if I can take him through this training protocol that we do for these seeing eye dogs in this program. And if he can do all of those things, then we can move over to making sure that he has all these other tasks. And in the meantime, he started going and getting my medication for me. Wow. Good boy. He would go and get the medication that I needed to stop the panic attack. He could get it out of my purse. He could get it off the counter. He could, and he, I cannot say enough how I just kind of lucked into this dog. Very intuitive dog. Very intuitive. And he stepped into that space. He went through the training in the most beautiful way. And for seven years, I was able to live my life out and about with him um, helping me to function as, and he was a medical device in those, in those situations, you know, he was ensuring that my blood pressure was fine. Cause it wasn't until years later that doing different testing on some stuff that we figured out that that's what was causing me to pass out. And the reason I hadn't been passing out is because he was helping to ground me in that moment, right before my body would move full on into that fight or flight space. Yeah. So, um, to be a legitimate service animal, they have to have a task that they do that serves in the way that a medical device would serve. I think it's important to say too, that there's so many, like you were saying, organizations out there that are happy to take your money to certify your pet in any one of these fields that are just bogus. Yeah. Well, and, and two, if someone isn't vetting you, if they're not vetting your legitimate medical need, all they care about is the money. Yeah. A lot of times they'll have people on those. I know the ESA scams are huge. I do a lot of education about that. ESA is emotional support animal. I just want to throw that out there. Go ahead. Yeah. Thanks. So, uh, yeah, they'll, they'll, you type in ESA and, or emotional support animal and the whole top ranking will be these centers and they'll have information and then they'll say, go ahead and certify your pet here. Pay us $99. We'll put you on the phone with the therapist. We'll get you a letter. The problem is that half the time, those aren't even therapists, number one. And because a legitimate therapist won't do that. Right, right. The law has gotten savvy and they're starting to make more rules around that too, to the point where now in some areas, they're starting to talk about having to see the same therapist three times before it counts, you know, as being your therapist. And so you just want to know that anything like that is a scam and it's actually going to put you more risk of losing your status of an emotional support animal than it will to help you with that status. I hear a lot of people too, that say my doctor, my therapist, my psychiatrist will not sign anything for an emotional support animal or a service animal. And my reply to that usually is go find a different doctor. Cause if you legitimately need it, they should know about it and they should be open to working with you towards that or explain why Why not, why there's an issue. Right. Exactly. If they just shut down and say, I don't do that, then um, it might be worth a switch. Or being willing to open that conversation and say, okay, so you don't do this. So why not? What, what, you know, and it might just be the fact that there is so much out there that is open for lawsuits because there isn't the regulation around it. And people are like, well, why don't they regulate it better? Again, it comes back to what now the person with the disability is once again, having to prove 
that they have a right to function in the normal regular world. And it's a, it's an unfair space to continue to put someone in. Do I think there needs to be some way to have it be comp- a compromise on that? Yes, because I do think because so many people keep passing their pets off, trying to pass pets off, they have no business being out in public. There was a dog um, at that. I can't even remember what store it was, but we were in a store and there was a dog that was very obviously not a service dog that tried to bite my service dog. And that was scary. And I mean, I'm, I'm dealing with panic disorders anyway. Right. And then here there's a pet that should, that had no business being in a place of business and it was fine until there was another animal there, but a service animal will not react to another animal. They've been trained to not react to another animal. I've been training in personality testing of dogs now, because the truth is not every dog can be successful as a service dog, no matter how wonderful they are. Yeah. There's some that have a high prey drive that putting them in that situation all the time is miserable for them. So it's really important to get a good fit both for the dog and the person. And when you don't have a good fit for both, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. For sure. Because we had lucked out with our first dog, we thought we'll get a puppy when Dalen got dementia, that Dalen was my service dog when he got dementia. We thought, well, we'll get a puppy and we'll train him and have him go through a boot camp, you know, to just help make sure that he's got all the fundamentals and the basics and everything down in the beginning. Look, Ozzy does not have the personality to be a service dog. <laughs> that dog has more anxiety Most than do I not. <laughs> Most don't. Most yeah. do not. Most yeah. do not. And that ended up being okay for me because I had moved into a space with all the years of therapy and the different things that I did that I was willing to look into some other forms of, of, of healing and things. And I actually do not have a panic disorder anymore. So it ended up, yeah, yay. It ended up being okay, (laughs) but you know, there was a lot of, yeah, there was just a lot that I had to go through with that and understanding that and recognizing, which is why I feel it's important that there is a space for what you're doing because there's a need. There are people with legitimate needs And they need to be able to have people who truly understand the difference between the ESAs and the um, essays, right? Emotional support animal or service animal. (laughs) Yes, you're absolutely right. And Um, and that work with that to ensure that that's happening from the beginning so that they have the, the temperament and the personality and things. Yeah. Most people don't realize how much good breeders put into it. I mean, before I even breed, we're doing genetic testing on the dogs to make sure we know which recessive genes they have because breeding two dogs together with certain recessive genes, if they both have it, it becomes dominant and that can cause blindness in puppies by the time they're four. There's a really horrible skin disorder that you wouldn't see in either of the parents, but if you breed them 25, statistically 25% of the litter would have it and it's a lifelong condition. Right. So there's the genetic testing and then we do um, advanced testing through a veterinarian where we do heart, patellas, hips, eyes, you know, all these things. And a lot of times dogs flunk out of our program for lack of a better word, right? not ones that we would breed. And on top of that, we're looking for the best temperament in parents, you know, best to the breed standard. And so we spend a lot of money that goes nowhere 
because they're not the right fit. So that's why people don't understand that's why breeding is so it can be expensive. Mm -hmm. And then we start early. We do early neurological stimulation on both of our cats and our dogs starting at day three. And basically that was something that was developed by the army. Interestingly enough, isn't it fascinating? There's a lot of stuff that comes through the military and the work that they do working to try to help veterans with PTSD and a lot of those things. And there's a lot of awesome, amazing things that have come into the mental health arena and world around people looking to create a space of healing for our veterans. Sorry. (laughs) I'm passionate about that too. (laughs) No, I think, I think it's awesome. And I just, I think as a breeder, you have to be well-educated to be a good breeder. Yes. So it's so interesting that just this, there's five steps to it. And by doing that five steps for 14 days, when they're age three to, you know, till 17 days old, that it develops different neurons in the brain that make them more resistance to sickness later on, more resistance to anxiety, all kinds of things that, um, I never would have guessed. Yeah. No, it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's really cool. Um, so Heather, what is, what is the name of your program? Where can people reach you? Uh, so I'm big hearted breeders, big hearted breeders. Yes. Big hearted breeders. And, um, I also train other breeders on how to do similar things because I know when I got started, I just didn't know what I was doing. Um, so I'm trying to get back and train other breeders so that we have more ethical breeders. There's less of the worry about backyard breeders where possible because everyone kind of knows how to do it better. I think there's a lot of breeders out there that just don't know better. So yeah, that's, I, I live my life with the idea that most people are doing things with good intention. Yep. They're doing the best they can with what they've got. That's my philosophy too. how I approach people. Do you read Brene Brown? I do read Brene Brown. (laughs) She's awesome. I want to, before we um, end this today, I do want to talk about the uh, living an authentic life. Do you feel that you are in a space where you are living your life authentically at this point? That's a big question. I mean, I am really honest and open with what I do and how life is. And some days life sucks. Let's just be honest. Um, I love what I do with some days. I hate it. It's a lot of work and there's parts of it that aren't fun. Um, But I can't imagine doing anything in my life that I feel like I have more passion for. And then I feel like gives back as much as what I do for, don't you feel for like, my skill set. Don't you feel like for the, like about a decade ago, it's starting to taper off now, but about a decade or so ago for like 10 to 15 years, it seemed like people said, if you're passionate about it, you'll never work a day in your life. And now we finally have the truth where people are saying, look, just because you're passionate about it doesn't mean that sometimes it's still not going to suck. The passion's what gets you through the suck. It's very true. I have a deep philosophy that everything is figure outable. So Marie Forleo wrote a book. I love her. That book was great. Wasn't that book great? I actually didn't read it until I picked up the the mantra. Like it just became a mantra of mine. Everything is figure outable. And then I was like, oh, that's a Marie Forleo book. I better go read that. So great book. I love honest. Her. Honestly, I read a lot of things on Blinkist. I don't know if you Blinkist. Yeah. It summarizes the book. Right. Um, so sometimes I'll listen to that first and decide if I want to read the whole thing. Right. <laughs> and I do a lot of audible while I'm cleaning. Me so. too. Me too. And podcasts. Hello. Yep. <laughs> yes. Woo-hoo. Uh, what would you say 
has been one of the most difficult things that you have overcome that has created for you now a gift in the way that you live your life? I think the biggest gifts come out of the biggest trauma, the biggest oh, I believe despair. It That's what I think. Uh, you know, I, I look at, like we talked about my childhood of being so lonely and now understanding people and wanting to meet them where they're at. I look at working with my foster adoptive kids and even my biological kids and the anxiety and depression that runs through my family and realize that I understand things that a lot of people don't get because they haven't experienced it. My my brother's suicide, um, my son recently had a suicide attempt and all these things that for a while really knock you off your feet yeah. and take your breath away. And then you regroup and you look at it and you're like, okay, everything is figure outable. What do I need to learn from this? How do I move forward? And how can I serve better? Because I understand this better. So that's really how I feel like I've grown the most is by going through the most pain. I never wish it. It's like, right. that line. no, no, we don't want it. <laughs> I always think of Evan Almighty, that old show back in the day where you know, he says something like, God, I know you love me, uh, you know, something about, I know you do this because you love me. And then he says, love me less. And then, so some days I definitely feel like that. Love me less. I'm like, ah, love me less, whether it's universe or God or whoever you like Whatever. Like, yeah. I don't want to grow this week. Okay. Not this week. Don't make me grow anymore. I feel like as I've moved into my forties, that I've stepped into a space of better caring for myself during this process and recognizing the things that really don't matter so much and being able to let them go faster (laughs) and just a better sense of contentment. And people say, you know, we hit our forties and then we just stop caring, but it's, it, it feels that way to some people because like our bullshit meter is just gone. I think we hit this point where it's like, why am I dealing with this if it's not serving my life in a healthy and positive way? And so I'm going to get rid of that. <laughs> if this isn't serving what I need, I'm going to let that go <laughs> and absolutely into my life that do provide that I live, I live, and this will come up a lot in this podcast. I try to live And I base things on what I call the scale of one to 10. And I do this with everything because, and it started because Corey, my beautiful, wonderful husband was never very good at giving me feedback that I could understand. So I would say, how was dinner? And he'd be like, it's good. I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, what do you mean? What does that mean? It was good. You know? So I came up with the scale of one to 10 on a scale of one to 10, one being, this is the most disgusting, horrible thing I've ever eaten to 10 being, this is the most amazing. I can't imagine any way this would get any better. Where would you rate this meal? And I don't repeat meals that don't hit in that eight, nine, 10 space. <laughs> I've taken that scale of one to 10 and I use it. Like when I'm assessing my mental health, when I'm assessing everything, like my goal is to live my life in the seven to 10 on the average, I'm going to have days that are going to fall down to a four or two, or even like a one, you know, there's days that are the one, but my average, if it's hitting that seven, eight, nine, 10 space, then I know that I'm living my life, creating what I want out of life. So if I'm finding myself falling, when I'm doing that assessment and I find myself falling in that four, five, six space consistently, 
then I know it's time to really examine what's going on and figure out what I need to do to move back into that seven through 10 space. And sometimes it's just like, we're in a pandemic. There's not a whole lot we can do about this moment, but what can I do with what I have to make it the 7910? You know, we, we were traveling and all the campgrounds got shut down. We were living full-time in our RV. All the campgrounds got shut down and suddenly we don't have anywhere to live. We truly became homeless, even though we were driving our home around. And that was kind of scary. And then we, we ended up finding a space on the Savannah river in Virginia and here the world is shut down and we could have focused on, it would have been really easy for me to focus on everything that we had just lost, but I would sit there on that beautiful river and just think, there is no better place to be on pause right now, you know? And a lot of it is the reframing. It's the reframing of the situations that we find ourselves in. Yeah, absolutely. That's beautiful. Without adopting toxic positivity. Yeah. I'm not saying the pandemic didn't suck. It sucked. (laughs) (laughs) But I found ways to embrace and enjoy the little moments still. Yeah. So one of my favorite mentors, Tiffany Peterson, um, talks about closing the loop faster. So she's like, you're going to get off track. You're going to go in a loop. The trick is though, not to stay stuck in that spiral. It's to close that loop faster and get back on track. So I love that. Yeah. Get off the circle. She also says you may be going through hell, but don't build a house there. (laughs) (laughs) Just enjoy a bonfire for a minute and then let's move on. (laughs) We all need a pity party every now and again, you know? So Just don't build a house there. So what do the next uh, five years look like for you, Heather? So I am working to educate more people about animals and how they can help in their lives. I really want to place some of the best premier emotional support therapy and service dogs in the world. And then actually I'm looking at getting into electronic pets. So, you know, everything is moving digital now. Right. And I don't even understand it, but I was someone was explaining to me yesterday about how people were designing shoes that were exclusive, that were just virtual. Like you can't do anything with them, but look at them virtually. Shoes? Yes. And Nike just bought them. Nike just bought this um, shoe company that was designing online shoes. And so Everything is kind of moving virtually. They're talking about a, a web 3.0. So we're at 2.0 now. It's moving okay, but to my 3.0. Brain hurts I know. Because I can't wear them. I know. I mean, granted, like my- half the shoes in my closet I don't wear anyway. They're just pretty and I like to look at them, but at least I can like, you know, touch them. I got off that call and I my brain totally hurt too. There's art that's only virtual that's being sold. No, all I can understand stuff. that. I know, but the shoes, some, she was saying that someone she sat next to at this conference paid, I think it was $20,000 to design a virtual space that looked like a bar for him and his friends to go hang out in online. Yeah. Like they're selling virtual real estate now. Like you buy these rooms and you can make them whatever you want. So it's like zoom 3.0. I have mixed feelings about that because we just went through the pandemic like how awesome is that that you have a place you can go hang out with your friends? But on the other hand, like eh, I want to hang I, out with my friends. I completely agree. It really sounded like Ready Player One. Yeah. In real life. <laughs> but all these big companies are getting on it. Disney's starting to design virtual reality parks, and I mean, all these big names are realizing that's the movement. So I'm like, you know what? Well, I'm going to design 
design emotional support animals for that space. So smart. If you're going to have them, can we pass them out on Discord to teenagers, please? I know. Wouldn't that be nice? But honestly, as a mom, like I just want to cut all those cords to all the devices and be like, this is stunting your growth. Go, you know, after two to three hours a day, you are out of here. We are unplugging you. Go live your life. Yeah. Um, but with the reality of that's where the space is moving, that's kind of my thought there. Yeah. 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 So I, I think anyone that loves something ought to look at finding a way to take that love into that space. Since I think there'll be a lot of need there. It's just a way to stay with the growth of where we're going. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. And my brain hurts. I know. Poke your eyes out. <laughs> Two fingers. Yeah. Well, yep. So that's where, what I'm working towards. I really want to provide the best animals possible for people that need them. That's amazing. Yep. Well, good. Well, I absolutely love you. I hope that my listeners can hear. I know, I know they're hearing it. You're just an amazing person. And I would not have been friends with you for (laughs) so many years. I know. It's like, yeah, we're done with you. (laughs) In fact, here's, here's a little tidbit. My wedding night, the night before I got married, I spent sleeping on the floor of your uh, nursery <laughs> out in California. I remember that. Yep. Corey slept out on the couch. I slept in um, the baby's room on the floor. But yeah, we've just been in and out and around each other's lives for a very long time. I know we kind of rotate. There's time where we're kind of out of each other's life for a little bit, but we always come back and always circle you know, back things bring us together. And I am just thankful your family just shout out to your parents for taking in a stray. Cause <laughs> I, th- I think your brother Ryan was like, well, she never go away. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we ever saw you as a stray. I, I mean, I can't speak for Ryan, but for my parents, I can, they just loved you. Yeah. And I, I loved you. I so. absolutely love your parents and your family. Your family gave me hope. And I th- I want to throw this out there because um, growing up in my home, there was a lot of hurt and heartache and a lot of toxicity and I'm even abuse. And um, I say that with love. My parents are great people that got caught in really bad patterns, you know, and it can happen to anybody else. This is why I think it's important to talk about it. But I did not know that there could be a different kind of family situation, except that your family just kind of opened their arms and pulled me in. And I just love your sisters to pieces. I love your whole family. I love Facebook for that reason, because I get to keep in touch with all of you. It's just so beautiful. (laughs) And I think it's hilarious how you follow each other to each other's neighborhoods and live by each other all the time. I don't think you guys are right now, though. I think finally you're not in the same neighborhood or are you? We are not within a few blocks of each other. Well, most of us are not. So, yeah, we used to be like in the same block. All of us. I remember that. That was a little intense. I was so involved with my life. I generally do not get caught up in drama. I just don't, I don't have time for it. I don't mean to be rude, but I'm there to help people. But if there's drama, it's kind of like, I will why we stayed friends for so long because neither of us does the drama. Yeah. So I live now probably five minutes from both two of my sisters, uh, actually three. So a third one um, built over here. And then I'm about 
20 to 30 minutes from my parents and my brother. I think it's fabulous that your family loves each other that way. Most days. Most I think days. We're typical yeah, family. Yellow one. To, no, just kidding. <laughs> I won't make you do that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so Heather, we have reached the part of the show where I like to ask my guests if they have a life book recommendation, something that um, has really just resonated with you that you wouldn't mind sharing with the listeners. It's always tricky to pick just a few because I, I know. love books. I know. And I know we've talked a little bit about Brene Brown and anything by Brene Brown is awesome. Um, but one we haven't talked about that I've always really liked is a book called Hidden Treasures by Leslie Householder. It goes into kind of the principles of working with God in creating your life, I guess is my best way to sum it up. And some of the different ways to kind of go about that. Another book that's made a huge impact on me is uh, The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. There's a the last chapter in there about Einstein time, which has really made me think about my relationship with time and how I view time. Recently had a coach ask me if you had time show up at your home, how would you treat them? You know, what would the experience be? And I'm like, oh, if time was a person, I probably would look like the biggest nag to them. You know, it's like faster. Slow down. Let's go. I know. Like, <laughs> we have to get more time done, you know, things okay. done in this time. So um, it was an interesting realization of some wow. shifting that I needed to do. And so the book on Einstein time in the big leap is awesome. Um, I feel like we whole- could do a whole podcast just around that one topic. Yes. Yes. And I think as women and as moms, and I mean, any human, we just have so much on our plate these days that sometimes we have to realize that we're not very conscious of how we think about time and how we choose to use it, I guess. Yeah. Well, and that really comes back to the whole framework of what it's a packed life is, you know, it's all about unpacking everything that we don't want back in our lives And right now it's this kind of a beautiful time to have done that because we're coming out of the pandemic. Everything's opening, you know, we're in this space of like reawakening and we're moving into that space now. And so what are the, I don't want to put a lot of stuff back in that was in there before, you know, as we're planning our schedule and getting busy and stuff again, there's some stuff that I'm like, no, mm -mm, we're not doing that. And so anyway, so it's about unpacking all of the things that we don't want, putting the things back in and doing it like very intentionally. And that just having time be a person, like my brain is like, Ooh, there's like a whole thing right there. There definitely is. Um, oh, and well, as you, awesome. I, I'm really all about like how we think about things, how we talk about things and how it ends up affecting us in our lives. And when, when you feel rushed all the time, it makes it so you're worn down and you have that cascade of chemicals of the fight or flight all the time. Instead of having the same ability to do what you have to do, you know, that essentials with the feeling of, I've got this. Right. I, I can do well, this. And how many things do we tell ourselves are essential that really aren't? And that was a big waking up for a lot of us with the pandemic to recognize, like even just grocery shopping has completely changed for me. You know, I'm, I'll assess, is it better for me to pay the $15 tip to the driver and have my groceries delivered and have me not have to spend that time 
driving to and from the store and doing the actual shopping at the store. So we pay Walmart and a local grocery store out here. We pay like a monthly fee with both of those so that if we decide to do either a pickup or to have it delivered, that them collecting the groceries is free. And then the only thing I have to worry about paying is it will, if it's a rush order, but I rarely do that, but is paying like the actual tip for the delivery person. And so that was, you know, that's a choice that I'm able to now have and to make is to say, okay, it's going to take me, you know, 20 minutes to get out to the grocery store. It's going to take me an hour and 20 minutes to two hours because I get so distracted. And then I end up buying things that weren't even on my list and, you know, like all of that. And so I financially, I usually come out ahead when I'm in that stressed out space using that service because I'm not as focused. So I'm not just going into the store and just buying things off my list. Whereas when I'm in a healthy mind frame, it's really easy for me. I go in the store, I buy the things on my list and I get out. A couple of days ago, I did part of my shop and I went to the store and did that. And then all this was happening and I needed the rest of the groceries for today. And I was just like, I'm paying, I'm paying someone to do that. And it's so much worth it to me. I know I spent less money having that happen, even with the additional tip. And I, and we tip extra right now because gas is so expensive, you know, but, and I, and I know I, I live kind of out here. (laughs) I want people to pick, to come and do my deliveries. (laughs) So we try to tip really well, but yeah, it's, it's all about really just being intentional with it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's, I love that example of realizing that you are actually saving money by having someone deliver your groceries to you and sanity. Oh, so much sanity saved because I'm just not in a good headspace today. So that was really good. The next question is if there is anything that you're reading or listening to right now, if it's a podcast or an audible book or another book that you're just reading that maybe isn't like, Oh, this is such an amazing book that makes me contemplate time, you know? (laughs) But just something that's kind of fun or interesting that you're reading or listening to right now. So right now I'm reading a book called Soundtracks by John Acuff. And it's the surprise solution to overthinking, which I thought was interesting because sometimes I tend to... Are you trying to tell me something, Heather? (laughs) Trying to tell you something about me. That's what I'm trying to do. (laughs) You're not calling out a friend that you've known for 30 years. (laughs) Nope. So I just started it. So I couldn't give um, a great, uh, you know, synopsis of it other than I'm hoping it helps me with my trouble of other thinking. The other thing I was reading is a book called Happy Money. I don't know if you've heard of that one um, by Ken Honda. And I've really enjoyed that book too. It's again, thinking about money like a friend. Are you grateful for your money? Are you tight with your money? You know, do you send it it? off? Yeah. Do you send it off with like, oh, I'm so grateful I have this. And now I get to share it with other people. So that's been interesting to to do. (laughs) Yes. Those are the two I'm kind of in the middle of. I'm further in happy money than I am in the other one. Humanizing tasks so that we relate to them or it's not even tasks. How, what would be a better wording for that? Humanizing abstract ideas into concrete ones. I don't know. Yeah. Making, making them into relationships because that's what they really are. I mean, we have a relationship with time. We have a relationship with money, but until you think of it like a human relationship, it's hard to grasp. It's really easy to get complacent. I think even in our human relationships, often we start to get complacent 
And it's when we make a practice of being intentional and taking the pause for awareness so that we can be intentional, that we have the strong relationships that we want to have. Yeah, for sure. I love that. I super love that, Heather. Thank you for those recommendations. Uh, Well, shoot. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And I'm going to wrap that part of the podcast up. Um, Is there anything else you want me to make sure is in here? If anybody has questions, love to help answer them at uh, Emotional Support Animal Resource Center on Facebook. And then you can find me on almost every platform at Big Hearted Breeders. uh, And that's my website as well. So if anybody has questions. Are you on Instagram? I am. I am on Instagram. On the gram. Working on TikTok and Pinterest. Um, I'm on Pinterest and TikTok, but I haven't been very active. So I'm working there. I'm actually oh, I moving. TikTok would be fabulous with your animals and the stuff that you do. Yep. And then YouTube and then working on a podcast just like you. So I'm just uh, trying to be like you, Celeste. Uh, don't do that. Do you, boo? <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely better to be who we are than try and be like anybody for sure. Yeah. Keeps life happy, right? Yep. For sure. Well, that's it for the podcast. So I'm going to stop the recording. Hang on one second. Whew. This life is packed.